you're in danger. So I, I urge you to, to really think seriously about the things we've been saying. Now, I want to kind of think about our illustrations so far. We've been looking here about the athlete, and we've been talking about exercise and and how the athlete prepares for the Olympic Games and, and the rigors that he puts himself through. And he's disciplined. If he's going to have any hope of actually winning a prize, he must be disciplined. You just can't show up to the Olympics and run and expect to do something. Right? You've got to practice. You've got to put hours of disciplined effort in if you want to do something. And then we talked about the military, about a soldier and how disciplined, his life depends on discipline. If he's ill-disciplined, he's going to be in trouble. And I want to kind of put these two things now in a broader context. We've been thinking about individuals, the individual athlete. We've been thinking about the individual soldier. soldier. We've been thinking about your quiet time, your discipline. But I want to think now in terms of a more collective view of things. Because you see, um, an athlete is usually part of a team. Olympics coming up, there's going to be Team USA, going to be Team GB, I know who I'm going to be supporting, and uh, uh, right, I mean, uh, there's going to be teams that will be competing, and actually the, the performance of the individual athlete is good, but it's also part of a team, there are going to be events that will be team events, right, the, the uh, what do they call it? the relay race, where they pass the baton, right, and one guy does his bit, and if the other guy blows his uh, section, then the whole team are going to lose. And so there's the team concept. In the military, usually in the military, you are part of a unit. And as part of a unit, your involvement with your other colleagues, you doing your job and doing it well, your colleague's life may depend on that. And I want to talk about the discipline of fellowship in the local church because you're not an island in fact I can say dogmatically without fear of contradiction that it's God's will for you to be in fellowship in a scriptural New Testament church and to be involved in it the idea of a Christian just floating around doing his own thing is absolutely unbiblical right uh, th this concept is uh, in scripture is, is one of fellowship and just like we said the, the, the athletic team everybody doing their part uh, is important for the whole team effort same as the military every person in the unit doing his part the, the other's lives may depend on it well the Bible describes us as a body and um, my heart may well be beating at a very disciplined rate right now but if my kidneys pack in, I'm in serious trouble, right? The whole body is affected by one part that is not doing its part properly. And, and so we, we want to just think about our part of the whole, a part of the church and, and the discipline connected by in that. Why is the church so important? Several reasons. One is this, Ephesians 5.25, Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. See, I think it's impossible to love the Lord Jesus and be indifferent about the church. Because if we love him, we surely love what he loves. Right? Secondly, 
it's said of the Lord Jesus, John 2, 17, as the disciples watched him. And remember, he went into the house of God and he saw that they turned it basically into a den of thieves. And remember, he took this, uh, this whip made of cord and he drove the money changers out of the temple. And the disciples said of him, zeal for thy house hath eaten me up. They said, that, that's what, it reminded them Psalm 69, you see, and they said that, that the Lord Jesus had a zeal for the house of God. Can I say this? That God's plan for your life is for you to be like the Lord Jesus. Would you agree with that? He has predestinated us to be conformed to the image of His Son. Anybody disagree with that statement? You disagree with Scripture, right? It's clear that's God's plan. But I'm telling you, you can't be like Jesus and not care about the church. Because zeal for the house of God consumed Him. And God wants you to be like the Son of God. He so loves the Son of God, He wants all of us to be like Him. And, and we cannot be like Him if we have a lackadaisical, laid-back, undisciplined attitude towards the church, which is His body. Can't, you just can't be like Christ and be like that. <clears throat> and so, what's your attitude towards the church? Uh, <clears throat> as a believer... That's what we should be involved in. You know, and I think part of the problem is maybe some of you raised in a Christian home, taken along to meetings all your life and all the rest of it, and, and maybe in the back of your mind, it's kind of mom and dad's, some of the younger ones. I want to tell you something about that. Um, I remember when I got my first uh, car, when I passed my test, my dad, he had a brand new Toyota, and he said, Michael, I'm an only child. He worked away. The car was stuck in the driveway. Mom could drive. said, you can drive my car whenever you want brand new car and then eventually I, I saved enough money to buy my own it was kind of uh, I used to call it my upside down convertible there was so much rust on the bottom you could see the ground you couldn't see the top but you could you know it was it was a heap of junk but you know what it was mine and it was precious to me it was no longer me driving my dad's car I had my own and I made it my own and it was special to me and when it comes to the local church, when you start to make this your own, it will become precious to you. It really will. And, and you've got to do that. You've got to have that zeal for the house of God and be involved. Now, again, the scripture is kind of clear on, on what this church should be like. And, and again, I don't want to get sidetracked into New Testament uh, principles, but you know, the just general pattern is given in scripture. I just read Acts 2. These are the things that ought to be part of a local church. Sadly, many churches miss these things, very, very simple things. Acts 2, 41 and 42, stuff you know already. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day were added unto them about 3,000 souls, and they continued steadfastly. You notice that? Uh, that's, the, that's the idea of discipline, isn't it? it? It doesn't say they continued seldomly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and prayers. They continued steadfastly. That means that they were, they were firm as in purpose. They, 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 were, they were stubbornly sticking to these things. See, I, I see a lot of people, I call them breezers. You know, if, if the wind's blowing in the right direction and everything's going well, and there's nothing else along the, the, the horizon, they'll come. And they breeze in, and it's, it's like they've never been missing, you know? And then they breeze out again, and it could be weeks before you see them again. Then they'll breeze in again. 
That's not what this is talking about. These people, and you know what? They did it at a time when the church was under tremendous threat from the religious hierarchy of the day, right? I mean, this time when these people joined themselves to the 120, remember who the 120 were? They were the ones that were locked in the upper room, bolted with the dolls bolted on the inside, right? Hostility was in the air. And they joined themselves to this company of despised individuals, believers, and it says they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, and in prayers. And I believe those are critical things. We, we might call them the four basic food groups of assembly life. Right? We need these things. We need teaching. We need fellowship. That, that mutual togetherness and encouragement in the work of God. Uh, <clears throat> we need to pray together. And we need to remember the Lord together, don't we? And so these are critical things. And, and uh, Tim, go to the mission field. You know, find a house, but also find a place to fellowship. I, I, you know, it really bugs me. I go to the mission field all the time, and I meet people commended from assemblies who don't even go to an assembly on the field. Can you believe that? And people are involved in ministries galore. But I'll tell you, there's a ministry that's close to the heart of God. It's called the church. And today we're living in days where there's multiplication of ministries, but a neglect of the thing that is closest to the heart of God, which is the church. And I, I really, it, it bugs me. I, I, forgive me, I'm kind of an irate Englishman. You know, I get kind of upset about some of these things. And it really bothers me. Because the church is where it's at. And so many things that we call parachurch, you know, and forgive me if this sounds a bit hard. There's a lot of good things about parachurch. But you know, para, um, you know, it's kind of a similar word, parasite. You know that word parasite? You know what it does? It sucks the life out of the body, but it gives nothing back. And there are people that are very committed to their parachurch organization, but they've nothing for the church. Now, again, I'm not despising everything that's para... Don't get me wrong. Uh, you know, there's a lot of good things out there. Answers in Genesis, some of these ministries. Very helpful. We thank God for them. But listen, God's priority is the church. Don't ever forget it. Let's put in first place what he puts in first place. And I think this is critical. I really do. And, and so, uh, again, what's your relationship to that? Look at Romans chapter 12. I want you to notice something here. Romans 12, very key passage. We've heard it, I don't know how many times. But context is so critical in understanding the Word of God. And so here's this passage. It's, it's very clear. Beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable or intelligent service. And, and so we think about a surrendered life. We think about people like Hudson Taylor, who at 16 years of age, reading uh, a, a, a gospel tract, he was already saved, but he was just reading a gospel tract and was thrilled afresh with the mercies of God for him. And he laid prostrate on the ground and he presented his body a living sacrifice. Isn't that amazing? 16 years of age. And God accepted that sacrifice. And Hudson Taylor got up and went to China. 21 years of age, hit the shores of China, the rest is history. Amazing, isn't it? Consecrated life. And, and so we're thinking about this consecration, but the question is, what do you do with a consecrated life? 
Well, I want you to notice what this passage tells us. Verse 3 says, For I say through the grace given to me to every man that is among you, first of all, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly. Don't be proud about giving yourself in service to the Lord or, or giving yourself... You see, you should have done it years ago. What took you so long? How come you were so slow to understand the mercies of God? You don't have anything to boast about, right? And, and so don't think more highly than you ought to think. Think soberly. And then he says... Verse 4, now notice this connection. For as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office, so we be many a one body in Christ, and everyone members one of another. Notice verse 6, having then gifts differing according to the grace that's given to us, where the prophecy, let us proph prophesy according to the proportion of faith, or ministry, let us wait on uh, our ministering, he that teaches on teaching. What is he saying? This consecrated body, don't get proud about it. And then what do you do with it? I'll tell you what you do with it. You, you find out what your gift is and you use it to build up the body of Christ. That's what consecrated believers do in Romans 12. You, you see the connection? Consecration first and then don't be proud about it. And then what? Well, the body. This is where that consecrated life is to be used to build up the local church. I think that's tremendous and very important. And, of course, it really helps if you know what your gift is. That helps a lot, doesn't it? Do you know what your gift is? How do you know what your gift is? Well, I guess you could kind of go online and do a survey and they'll tell you what your gift is. No, there's a better way. I want to tell you something. Two things about knowing how, what your gift is. One is, with gift comes desire. So, you meet a guy who's an evangelist, you don't have to tell him to witness. It's like telling him to breathe. He knows how to breathe, right? And he knows how to witness. He just does it. Uh, I have a friend, Gary Weeks from Canada. I don't know if you've ever met Gary Weeks. But his wife makes him go abroad on vacations because if there are people there that understand English and he sees a crowd, he's going to preach. It just That's the way he is. He's, he, he can't not do it. Why? Why? Because he has the desire that goes along with the corresponding gift. Nobody had told me to study the scriptures. I love studying the scriptures. Well, how, why is that? Well, because desire goes along with a gift. And so what are your desires in terms of spiritual things? What are the things that really kind of light your fire? That interesting. That would be one way. The other way is that we think in, in, in terms of our gift. I find that an interesting thing. Like if I was to say to my wife, I'd say, what, what do you think of this assembly? And if she was here long enough, I guarantee what she says, well, they're just not very caring. Now, I'm not saying that's not a judgment on your assembly. But, you see, she thinks in terms of her gift. Her gift is mercy, and so, so that's how she evaluates an assembly. Another person, you'd ask the same question. They'd say, the problem is, we don't have any heart for the gospel, right? That's the evangelist. He looks at the assembly, and he evaluates the assembly in terms of his gift. And then you ask somebody else who's a Bible teacher and they say the problem with assembly is we just don't have enough good teaching. Why? Because he thinks according to his gift. And so that's how he evaluates. So how would you evaluate this assembly? You say it's perfect, right? <laughs> what would you say is needed? Invariably, it's probably you that's needed and it's your gift that needs to be used. Right? And, and of course, it is important, isn't it? Gift is a very important thing. Especially when you think 
that the gift that you have, or gifts, plural, it could be more than one, the gift or gifts that you have were individually selected for you by the Spirit of God. Right? 1 Corinthians 12, 7, verse 7, that the gifts are given individually as He wills. Not true, right? In other words, you didn't you didn't say, oh, I want to do this gift. No, it was it was given, selected carefully by the Spirit of God. And um and let's be honest about it. Um if if the Spirit of God has gone to so much trouble of selecting a gift for you and for you to use to build up this local body and you don't even know what it is and you've never used it. How's that going to feel on the day of the judgment seat of Christ? When you realize that this assembly limped along for years because one of the kidneys weren't working and you happened to be that kidney. You get the picture? Isn't it important to be committed to this? I think it's very vital. Um, the church is not only a place where you use your gifts to build up the body of Christ, and by the way, finding fulfillment in the Christian life in doing that, because it is a joy to be doing what God wired you to do. There's nothing more thrilling than that. I don't feel like I've done a day's work in the last 20 years. Why? Because I love what I do. Right? I mean, it, to me, this is not work. This is joy. This is why, because you, you're actually... You're doing what uh, is, you know. Some of you know Scott DeGraff, and you've ever seen the the movie Chariots of Fire. You know there's a there's a bit there where he talks to his sister, who's kind of upset about him running, and and he says to her, he says, and in, in this thick Scottish accent, he says, and when I run, he says, I feel his pleasure. Well, I think when you find what your gift is, and when you use it, you'll feel his pleasure. You sense that you're doing what God wants you to do. And that's a joy in that, isn't there? So, so it's very important. To, not only that, the church, as well as being a place of service where you can use your gift to build up the body, it's also God's school. It's where we learn doctrine, where we learn the truth. Uh, seminary is not the place. Bible school is not, you know, if you were the devil and you wanted to corrupt the church, where would you start? I'll tell you exactly where I'd start. I'd start at the seminary, wouldn't you? If I can get all the preachers preaching heresy, I'm, I've won. It's really simple, isn't it? So, so that's not God's plan. You won't find a, sem you'll find a cemetery in Scripture, but you won't find a seminary in Scripture. Now, have we benefited from some of the work? Yeah, sure we have. But God's plan is that His school is the local assembly. It's where we learn. And you know, it's where we learn. Uh, I, I went to Bible school. I went to 18 months in Bible school. It was a good time. I learned a lot. But you know what? It was a lot of knowledge without any experience. And I, when I got out of there after 18 months, I was ready to straighten the world out. And especially the churches. And I had no experience. I had all this theoretical knowledge, but I didn't know how to live. And I was obnoxious. I'll be honest. Just obnoxious. See, the local church, you learn as you learn to walk. And so you don't get cocky and have all the... See, what does the scripture say? Knowledge, what does it do? Puffs up. 
So you come out and you've got a head so wide because you've got all this stuff going around in your head, but you've never actually lived. And so finally get to the mission field. I've got all this theoretical stuff. And then somebody we lead to the Lord, her husband walks out on her, says, I don't want to live with a Christian. And she commits suicide or tries to, fails. And she's in the hospital and I have to drive there. And I'm thinking, they never told me how to deal with this in Bible school. What am I supposed to say to her now? How do I, where do I begin? You see... What I found was interesting, one thing they didn't tell me in Bible school was anything practical about how the local church works. How to be at somebody's bedside when they're dying of cancer. How to, how to go around to, to, to a saint who's just lost a loved one and, and, and give them some comfort. I didn't, none of that was, was taught. Where's the best place to learn that? Right here with people you love who are going to go through some of those things. This is the place, isn't it? So it's God's school. It's a place where we learn. It's also it's a, a place where we learn patience and forbearance and long-suffering. Because if you haven't already noticed this, the saints aren't perfect yet. You notice that? <laughs> Harry Ironside was... Uh, uh, driven around by a guy called Ray Stedman in his later years. He, he, his eyesight had failed, but he had got so much scripture memorized and he would speak a lot. And so, so Ray Stedman used to taxi him around. And, and uh, one of the things Ray Stedman observed was all the strange people that used to come to hear Harry Ironside preach. And uh, he commented on this. There's a real bunch of odd ducks that come out to hear you. And Harry Ironside's answer was, where you get light, he says, you get bugs. And, you know, in a real sense, you know, we're, we're a peculiar people, aren't we? And we're people that are in transition, in, in, you know, we're in the process of being made into the image of the Lord Jesus, but we're not there yet. And you know, and I know that there's people in this assembly, and they're in every assembly, that are just odd ducks. You know what I mean? They're just difficult to handle, right? And... One of the things that I found is that people that keep running away from difficulties never grow up. You get people and they, they leave an assembly. And it's usually, now if you want to leave an assembly because they're no longer teaching the apostles' doctrine. Because there's, there's clear error. That's a time to leave. I couldn't stay in the Catholic Church after I got saved because they never gave me the gospel. How would I expect them to give me the ABCs of the Christian life if they didn't give me the gospel? I had no choice but to I couldn't stay under a ministry that was corrupting as far as the Word of God is concerned. But a lot of people leave not because of the teaching. You know why they leave? Because of personality conflicts. Only by pride cometh contention. And I can't get on with this guy. He can't get on with me. And we just have problems with each other. And so we run away and we go to some other place. And guess what? There's another guy just like him. And, the, and then you went as well, you see. So now you've got that problem all over again. And you never learn how to deal with it. I'm thankful. I was with a brother recently in an assembly. And uh, their assembly really practices proper scriptural reception. And if somebody goes to their assembly from another assembly, he will say to them, I'm, we, we need to contact your elders and find out why you left. And if there's a problem, you better go fix it before you come here. Because if you don't fix it, you're going to bring that problem with you here. That's great, isn't it? And he, he's a stickler. He said, we're not the fastest growing assembly in town, 
but we're unified because we haven't been a gathering of malcontents that can't get on anywhere else. That's wise, isn't it? So we don't want to run away. We want to learn to, to forbear with one another. We also want to learn service, not just in terms of using our gift, but opportunities to be like the Lord Jesus who took the towel and washed the disciples' feet. Do you think there are opportunities to take a towel in a place like this? Lots of them, aren't there? Cleaning rotor, cutting the grass. Well, you don't have much grass around here. I mean, sweeping the concrete, probably a better description around here or whatever. Uh, visiting the sick, widows, elderly, setting up chairs, tables, track distribution. Well, that list, there's lots of opportunities for service here, isn't there? What did the Lord Jesus say? You know what he said? He said, it's more blessed to receive than to give. Is that what he said? Uh-uh. He said it's more blessed to give than to receive. Now, do we believe him? Do we believe the Lord Jesus? I sometimes wonder if we really do. Because I get people and they, they come to a church and it's all about what's in it for me. What am I going to get out of it? In other words, all they're thinking is, what can I receive? You see, you don't have everything that I need. I want... You know, I want childcare for my kids all the way through to high school. I want this. I want, and it's kind of this. It's like a shopping. It's like you think they're buying a car. You know, I want a cruise tilt air. Uh, you know, kind of uh, leather seats, all the rest of it. Instead of coming and saying, what, "Lord, what would you have me to do? How can I make a difference amongst this group of saints? What ways can I wash the disciples' feet? You know, serve in some menial task that's on." seen unheard. I remember we went to visit a couple one time and they were involved in this assembly that we were in and and uh, real quiet uh, couple but just so faithful they would act, you know they would just go around they would empty the trash cans they would you know if there was something just even a piece of paper on the floor they'd pick it up they just they were just looking for little ways uh, nothing kind of upfront showy or anything like that but they just were serving quietly and we went to visit him one day and we just sat down with him. We told him how much we appreciate and we'd observed all the things they were doing. And they just wept like babies because, you know, they, they just said, oh, that's amazing, you even noticed. And there's so many opportunities for that, isn't there, for service in a place like this? And, but attitude is the key. Like Saul of Tarsus, when he became Paul, he said this. First words, no wonder God used this man. First words were, Lord, what will you have me to do? Boy, what an attitude. Sign me up. <laughs> I'm a volunteer. I just want to serve, right? Whatever way you want me to be involved in service, that's what I want to do. <clears throat> Mr. Kennedy, one of your presidents in the past, said this, Don't ask what can my country do for me, but what can I do for my country? We have a lot of people, and their whole attitude is, what can this country do for me? Isn't that, it's kind of, uh, you know, we want them to look after me from the cradle to the grave. I don't want any responsibilities. I want the government to do everything for me. And um, that's not the way it was when this country started, right? People came here with nothing, and through hard work, achieved much. Now, again, I'm not going to get sidetracked onto a political speech. That's not my... But what I am saying is that there's a great attitude, isn't there, that, that, that understands uh, the privilege and honor of service. And you just think about this. The Lord Jesus said that in a coming day, that even a cup of cold water that is given in his name will in no wise lose its reward. 
Isn't that tremendous? So if we get involved with an attitude and a heart to serve, well, there's reward up ahead. Even in the, if, if he notices even what we would consider the menial things, like giving somebody a cup of water, well, what about you know the things that, that are there for us to be doing that are much bigger than that that we could be involved in? And yet, it's amazing. I remember reading a story. It's a, in a series of short biographies uh, called They Finished Their Course. And I found it a tremendous challenge of just uh, different brothers and sisters and how they served the Lord in the context of the local assembly. None of them were really dramatic, you know, but, they, but there was one man, and he did a lot of work with troubled youth uh, in his secular life, uh, but always as a believer. He had the, a lot of privileges in those days that he could share the gospel, but he worked with troubled youth. And the Queen of England wanted to award this man for his services to the British Empire. She was going to give him the order of the British Empire because of all the work he did with troubled youth. So uh, an appointment was made for him to go to Buckingham Palace and receive the award from the Queen. But it so happened that it was on a Wednesday, and that was their prayer meeting night. So he wrote to the Queen and said, I'm sorry... I cannot come because I have a prior appointment with a higher authority. And he explained. So the queen wrote back, said, I admire your commitment. Can we reschedule for you to come? Isn't that interesting? True story. Where was his priorities? The local assembly, weren't they? That's what, that's what he had on. It was midweek prayer meeting night. And, and I think, you know, when it comes to even things like attendance at the meeting, I, I used to like Bill McDonald, he used to be very down to earth, he used to say, uh, how do you determine whether you should be at the meeting? You remember what he said? Do you remember that? He said, do a, check the obituary column of the paper that day, and if your name's not in the paper, you should be there. <clears throat> you know, I think that the decision to be there should never be left to Wednesday or whatever your prayer meeting night is. You know when the decision is made? Years before. The decision is made before God, when the saints are gathered, I'll be there. So then when it comes to that decision, it's not a decision. This is what we do on Wednesday nights. This is what we do on the Lord's Day. We gather with the royal family of heaven. Now, just want to mention some, some, setting some priorities. Our time's almost gone. Of course, one of them is, we just said, be there. Make it a life decision. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves in the manner of some is. Now, what does it say? Even as you see the day approaching. Anybody here see the day approaching? You think the Lord's coming? Are, you, are there things that are happening in our world that would give you a clue that the Lord might be coming soon? Well, then what are you supposed to do? Well, we need to meet together. Right? We need the mutual encouragement, right? The, the world is becoming more hostile, and we need encouragement. When I was first saved out of a Catholic background, and when all my friends uh, kind of just departed, they didn't want anything to do with this religious freak as they saw it anymore, 
I knew I needed to be there on Wednesday night because I didn't think I could survive until the following Sunday. I needed that encouragement. I'm rejected by my parents. My friends have rejected me. I needed affirmation and encouragement. And I knew the only place I'd get it was the local assembly. So there was not even a choice. It was, this is what we're going to do. Be there. Also, be prepared. I, I love this. First Corinthians 14. You know, we can crit criticize the Corinthian church for many things. But one thing you cannot fault them for is zeal. Notice verse 26 of 1 Corinthians 14. How is it then, brethren, when you come together, notice this, every one of you has a psalm, has a doctrine, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation, let all things be done unto edifying. No awkward silences in Corinth, was there? They're loaded. I mean, they're, their guns are loaded and they're ready to fire. And, and it's so frustrating sometimes if you've ever been in a meeting, like a remembrance meeting, where the brothers as believer priests are meant to, as it were, bring uh, thoughts about the Lord Jesus and worship and adore, remember him, and there's this kind of awkward silence. Now, I'm not saying we have to have every second filled. There's a place for silence. A, a meditative, contemplative silence when something wonderful has been shared about the Lord and to say something would spoil it. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a silence of poverty. I've been in places like that. I've been in places like that and you know what amazes me is that come coffee break those same dumb priests that have nothing good to say about the Savior have lots to say about college football. They're waxing eloquent about the game yesterday. But they didn't have one thing to say about the Lord Jesus. The Corinthians, I'll tell you, they were prepared. Good to come prepared, isn't it? Prepared to not be a spectator, but to be a participator for the sisters who worship silently. Sometimes I'm convinced that the only worship the Lord gets in some assemblies is your silent worship poured out to the Lord. Come prepared. Be sensitive to the needs of others. Philippians 2, 4, look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Come with that mindset where, um, Lord, I'm come here today to minister. Maybe there's some saint that's going through a real time of discouragement. Would, would you give me a sensitivity? Maybe there's somebody just sat on their own, nobody's with them. Maybe they just need somebody to come and put an arm around them and say, I love you, brother. Right? That kind of... That sensitivity, wanting to minister, wanting to be a listening ear, that's a good thing too, isn't it? Just to listen to somebody uh, and, and, and uh, unburden their hearts and their struggles can make a difference. Be positive. Don't come as a complainer. Uh, do all things without murmurings and disputing. It's like a cancer, isn't it? You get around a bunch of belly-aching saints, and uh, pretty soon you feel depressed yourself, right? Uh, don't, if you make your complaints to the Lord before you come, that would be a lot better. But, but don't do that. It's just not, it's not helpful. Be persuaded. Romans 14 verse 5. Let, all, let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. Are you persuaded scripturally about why you meet here? Good question, isn't it? 
I, I know why I'm in fellowship where I'm in fellowship. It's not because I grew up there. It's not because the people are of the same culture or background as me. It's because they're seeking by the grace of God to follow the teaching of the New Testament. And that's where I want to be. And, and, and I'm there because I'm convinced and convicted that that's where I should be. And it's good to be persuaded. Be punctual. That's a challenge. I know some of you got a heap of kids and you know how it is. It's like moving house every time you go to the meeting, right? You've got so much junk that you've got to bring. You know, you've got to remember the diapers and the wet wipes and the all. You know, hey, listen, we have five kids. I know exactly what I'm talking about. We've done that. But you know what my wife did? Saturday night, she got ready for the Lord's Day morning. She had all the clothes laid out, shoes cleaned, all everything was done. They were bathed. They were ready. We were never, ever late. You know why? Because we determined not to be late. We planned not to be late. Something important, right? You get an opportunity to go and meet somebody important. You want to be there on time. Be punctual. Because you know what? Guess who's going to be here? And he'll be, he'll be here right on time. Two or three are gathered. There am I in the midst, right? And Is he going to be there on time, do you think? I think he is, isn't he? So let's, let's do that. And as well, you know, it's kind of... Uh, and again, we're glad you're here. Even if you have to be late, we're glad you're here. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to be obnoxious in any way. But sometimes, if you come in late, first of all, you miss, especially the Lord's Supper, you miss the start, which often can set things up in a kind of direction. I remember one time a guy bursting in late, and straight away he opens his hymn book, calls out a hymn. He has no idea the direction the meeting is going whatsoever. You know, it just wasn't, it just didn't help, Right? So, so it's good if you're right there from the beginning, then you know where we're going. And then secondly, um, sometimes coming in, it's like, a, it's like a herd of elephants moving in, right? You know how it is, you know, with all the stuff and everything like that. And, it, it, you know, much as I'm trying to concentrate my mind, all this clattering and noise is kind of making it difficult for me. So it's just out of sensitivity. Again, Sunday morning, not, everybody's not going to be looking at you kind of. Weren't they listening on Wednesday when that guy was speaking? And We're not going to be doing that to you. But at the same time, you know what? I know you can be here on time. I really do. It's doable. And, and so what we're saying is all of these things, and by the way, it's not just the meetings. I don't want to just emphasize that because Hebrews 3.13 says we're to exalt one another daily. So you don't, we have no excuse anymore, do we? With technology, we can be daily in touch with one another. Can't we? Tremendous to do that, isn't it? Phone call at the right time can mean an awful lot to somebody. So again, we can be sensitive. Driving down the highway, we can do that. I've, this week, I've been going for a walk each day around the lake, and each day, I make phone calls. Call brothers, pray with them on the phone. Just a little thing. It's amazing what an encouragement it is. I get encouraged when somebody calls me and says, Mike, how are you doing? I've been thinking about you. I've been praying for you. How can I pray? That, that really makes a difference, doesn't it? We can all do that. You don't have to be a recognized elder to care for the flock. Elders are meant to be a pattern to follow, which means that we all should be doing that, caring for one another, right? <clears throat> and also, uh, just in a, a final thought, and it's um, New Testament churches... One of the things I really like about it is we're independent, 
In other words, we don't have any headquarters except where the head is, and the head is in heaven, right? That's where our headquarters is. We're independent, but we're also interdependent. And so, when you get an opportunity to visit another group of believers, do it. When you get an opportunity to go to their conference or whatever, support them, do it. Because it really is great, isn't it? Just to meet people that are like-minded and share fellowship and encourage one another. Uh, These are things that we should do. Uh, Psalm 119, verse 63. Back in the Old Testament, David says this, I am a companion of all them that fear thee and of them that keep thy precepts. Isn't that wonderful? But there's a discipline to assembly life. There really is. And um, it's a word that we don't like, but it's pretty essential. Commitment. Commitment. The Lord Jesus was committed to you. He was committed to go to Calvary. He was committed. He set his face as a flint. That's commitment, isn't it? Isn't it a joy that we can be committed to the things that thrill his heart? And the church, he loves it. He gave himself for her. And it's a great thing for us to be in tune with him, to love what he loves, to give us. But again, you'll never drift into being a committed brother or sister in the assembly. It begins with a purpose and a determination in your heart that I want to do that. So we're going to do that. That's the big question. Maybe I'm speaking to the choir. Maybe I'm preaching to the committed already. But maybe there's some that are just not quite there yet. But, as we said, today's the first day of the rest of your life, and we can change. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful. We're thankful for the family of God. We're thankful for others that are on the pilgrim journey with us, that go through the similar experiences, rejection in the world, hostility from others, and yet just a joy, Father, to be with them and with your people gathered in the name of the Lord Jesus in the way that he has asked us to do. And we certainly would ask for this meeting here. We're thankful for it, Father. We pray that you would bless this meeting with people who are committed to continuing steadfastly, not seldomly, but steadfastly in the Apostles' Doctrine, Breaking of Bread, Fellowship, and Prayers. We pray, Father, for understanding of what our gifts are and for Uh, the opportunities to use them so that in a coming day when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ we might have been able to say without hesitation that we have served the best of masters with all of our ability with the gifts that he has given and so we ask these things for the name and for the honor of our lovely Savior the Lord Jesus Christ Amen